the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I went to go pick up my paycheck and I looked and there was like a TV monitor, a computer monitor sitting outside on the sidewalk with glass everywhere, just shattered. There was no crime scene tape at that time. And I went upstairs, got my paycheck, and then the time I came down, the place was crawling with cops. They were rolling out the yellow tape. Like, what the heck? And I just was more intrigued about trying to find out, you know, is there anyone that I'm walking around at school with that could do this? I think at the end of the day, everyone's devastated by this because it's not the person that you know. And that's what's scary is, you know, you never know who you're walking next to. Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. We've been recording all day, but we're feeling good about it. Um, yes, I'm Are feeling we? emotionally and physically well, and we're going <laughs> to keep going. We're keep on keeping on. Before we do anything, I wanted to remind everybody that just in case you've been living under a rock, we have a Patreon. So if you are jazzing to get more first degree content. You want more and more and more. You can get more at our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash the first degree. We have four new episodes every single month. That's an extra episode a week that you can have your lovely earballs listen to. That's a lot of episodes extra. Like if, that's a lot. That's if, if you want another one a week, that's some good stuff. No, I mean that's three episodes of us a week. You're with us for almost three hours a week if you're on our Patreon. Four. That's crazy. Three. Four more it's- than usual. That's four a month. I'm talking Nutty. about a week. Wow, we're really good at math. Oh, um, sorry. Yes. Anyways. Anyways. Yeah, don't miss out. There's some good stuff there. Yeah, join us on Patreon. It's fun over there. So I'm going to jump into the day because ready for it. there's a lot of days here to go okay. through. It is Wednesday, October 19th, and it is dressed like a dork day. So bust out your suspenders, your glasses, your bow tie. That's how dress I dress in normal. That is, that is true. It's like how, just like your Alexis day. It's also evaluate your life day, which I love. No, thank you. (laughs) I'm good on that. It is hagfish day. I don't know if you know what a hagfish is, but it's kind of like those penis looking uh, eel like things that like don't really have a face. I feel like you've talked about them before. They look like a limp dick. Uh, They're disgusting. International hagfish day. It is gin and tonic day, uh, LGBT center awareness day, and it is national seafood bisque day. Whoa. Mm. I love a bisque. Mm. Mm. I would love to have a bisque on this All day, day. every day. A creamy lobster bisque. Bring it on. Yeah. So choose your own adventure today. There's a lot to choose from. So um, I do think that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. So spirituality plays an integral role in thousands of cultures the world over. 
and none more so than for the First Nations people of the United States. So folklore, spiritual beliefs, and practices of First Nations and their tribes is a big component of sustaining and preserving their culture right across the country. But despite the value and importance of celebrating and respecting First Nations cultures, racism and discrimination against Native Americans has been endemic since European colonization. The upheaval and trauma caused to First Nations communities by Europeans, bringing disease, genocide, and mass displacement, represented in human form the very evil such communities feared and did everything they could to protect themselves against. These concepts will be woven throughout the fabric of today's episode. So today's case takes us back to November 29th of 1996. Not only was it Thanksgiving weekend, but it was Black Friday, which marked the start of the Christmas shopping season. It had been 15 years since the mysterious drowning death of Hollywood star Natalie Wood and 33 years since former President Lyndon Johnson appointed the Warren Commission to investigate the assassination of President Kennedy. On the pop music charts, No Diggity by Blackstreet featuring Dr. Dre was at number one, which is a great song. Excellent song. Excellent song, followed by Tony Braxton's Unbreak My Heart, also an amazing song. Another amazing song, like still will bring me to tears. It was the mid-90s. Music isn't like what it used to be. It was perfect music time. It's my favorite genre of music. Same. At the movies, 101 Dalmatians starring Glenn Close was number one, and Star Trek First Contact was up there as well. And the setting for today's case is Farmington, New Mexico. So Farmington is situated in the northwest of New Mexico in San Juan County and just south of the Colorado border. The small city of around 36,000 people is located about 185 miles northwest of Albuquerque. So it's the largest city and commercial hub in a part of the country known as the Four Corners. So the Four Corners is where the borders of New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado meet. It's the only intersection of states of its kind in our country. And Farmington is home to several First Nations, including the Navajo, Hikarilla, Apache, and Mountain Ute, Southern Ute, and Hopi tribes. So the Navajo Nation on the city's outskirts is the largest Native American reservation in the country. Created in 1868 amidst mountains and spectacular bluffs and rock formations of the high desert. So for many years, Farmington's economy was primarily reliant on the multi-billion dollar petroleum, natural gas, and coal industries, which employed a large percentage of the local population. And our first story for today's case is named Amanda. Amanda was born and raised in Farmington and has seen some changes in the place over time. It's about 15 miles or less from the Navajo Reservation, which is the largest reservation, obviously, in the country. Farmington is a oil and gas town. It's, well, it's kind of not as much now, but it was at the time when I was growing up there. So like we do with every episode, we've given you a brief rundown on Farmington, but we're going to dive deeper into the sociocultural context of this city because it is central to our story. So as well as a large Hispanic population, Farmington has a large percentage of Native American residents, specifically those of the Navajo Nation. Geographically, the Navajo are isolated from the main city, with the reservation being on the edge of town. So spiritually, mysticism and symbolism are central aspects of Navajo folklore. These unique spiritual beliefs and traditions bring a valuable and complex layer to the way the Navajo live and work in this predominantly white community. So for the Navajo, 
Living in harmony with the entire universe, the elements and all living creatures is a driving philosophy of their way of life. Cultural guidance and leadership for the Navajo is a big part of the responsibilities of medicine men and shamans who perform rituals and ceremonies to help protect their community spiritually from evil and otherworldly dangerous influences. It's a small town. I would say like, well, now it's grown. It's kind of unique because there's the heavily influence of Spanish culture, Hispanics in the area, Native Americans. The majority was the Navajo reservation. And I grew up with several friends that were Native American. There's witch doctors and the medicine men and skinwalkers and things like that. There's a lot to the culture. Historically, racism and systemic oppression of the Navajo and Farmington especially has had a direct and profound impact on their quality of life and led to countless human rights injustices. And things have improved over the years, but only marginally. There's still a lot of work to be done, especially when it comes to addressing the harm and intergenerational trauma that colonization has inflicted on First Nations communities through the introduction of alcohol and violence and exploiting them as a source of labor. Farmington, very much racially divided, I would say. And I was grown in that racially divided nature. And it's still to this day somewhat like that. It's gotten so much better. However, there's still those undertones sometimes there. The amount of domestic violence and the, and the alcoholism and the medical issues and the cancer from the uranium mines, now that I've lived away for 25 years or however long it's been, I, I have a different sense of things. And I'm grateful for that because you know, when you're in it, it's hard to see it. I do still see it when I'm home because I think I can step away from it and I don't see it on the daily. But when I go there, I still see the racism and maybe not as much in in your face as it was back in the 90s or the 70s for that matter, but I still see it. So because Farmington was like a large town back when Amanda was in junior high, she was friendly with pretty much everyone, including a guy named Matt. So Amanda met Matt through one of her close friends and he was handsome and he was personable and they became friends. And he was one of the nicest guys in junior high school. I didn't really hang out with him a ton, but he was always so kind to me when I did see him. He was a good kid. Matthew Carlos Frank Trecker was born September 17th, 1978 to his mom, Christina. When Matt was young, his parents split. And in 1998, Christina married Jeff Trecker, who became Matt's stepfather. As a kid, Matt was really into anything aviation related, and he also loved country music and enjoyed rock climbing and reading. By the time Matt was in high school, his interests had veered into the alternative and he was into kind of fringy sort of stuff. He was like kind of one of those like on the fringe type guys. He was a cowboy. When I was around him, I hung out with him with a friend who had a house and I'll never forget that he had an indoor pool, but it didn't have water in it. And Matthew, that's where I met him, was at my friend's house. And he would, like, jump in the pool, like, walk up and down the banks with his, you know, feet or whatever. Like, he had a lot of energy, but he was just goofy. He was very good looking, super kind. His friend circle were more like the theater kids or the choir kids or whatever. I wouldn't say that they weren't cool, but they weren't in the in crowd. I think he was pretty well liked. He was just not very popular. There was a park near the Animus River where Matt and his friends would play fantasy role-playing games. So side note, I know Jared is into this too. My boyfriend Matt is super into Dungeons and Dragons, but he's never (laughs) taken it into nature, like into the real life before. LARPing. And frankly, it sounds really fun. You know, if you're you're so into this that it's like, hey, let's dress up like 
the character I'm playing and let's double down and make this reality. I can actually get into this. I, I, I personally haven't gotten into it, but I love the the fervor for this. So as it relates to our story, Amanda's friend Matt would play these fantasy role-playing games in this park. And one of the people Matt became close to through this hobby was a guy. He was 24 years old. His name was Joseph Aaron Fleming or Joe. So beyond what he did in his spare time, which was play these games in this park with Matt, Joe was also a part-time security guard at the Animus Valley Mall. The Animus River, which is the largest, it runs right in the middle of town. And there's a place called Bird Park. It was known on the weekends, people playing Dungeons and Dragons there, like dressed up in full cosplay. You didn't want to go there after dark unless you were like with that group. It was sketch. That park you didn't go to at night. It was the river. It was dangerous. I think he played a lot down there with the other people that liked the Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that. So Matt was ahead of Amanda in school just a bit. So after he graduated, they lost touch, but they remained friends. And Amanda still saw him along with lots of other kids from school because she worked at the movie theater and Farmington was such a small place. And that's all there was to do, go to the movies. So she saw everybody and everyone would see everyone there. So after high school, Matt received a scholarship to San Juan Community College, where he was due to start his studies in 1997. I was working at the movie theaters and several of his friends worked there as well. And I know he'd probably come in. I'd say hi, or I would see him talking to them or whatever. It's a small town, so pretty much everyone knows everyone. And if I would have seen Matthew, I will still would have said hi. By 1996, Amanda was in her junior year of high school, busy with cheerleading, with church, and all the regular stuff that teens have to juggle. Around 8.30 a.m. on November 29th, Amanda drove to a movie theater office to collect her paycheck. It was right around the corner from a shop called The Eclectic, and this is where Matt and his alternative buddies spent a lot of time. As she drove by the store, Amanda saw lots of shattered glass all over the street, as well as what looked like an old-school TV. The store's shop front had been smashed to pieces. I went to go pick up my paycheck, and I looked, and there was like a TV monitor, a computer monitor, sitting outside on the sidewalk with glass everywhere, just shattered. And I'm like, that is so weird. Someone must have broke, because my grandparents owned a store, like a, a business in that area, and they would get broken into from time to time, people seeking shelter from the cold or whatever, or to steal for drugs or whatever. And so I thought, well, that's probably what happened. There was no crime scene tape at that time. And I went upstairs, got my paycheck, and then the time I came down from that, which couldn't have been more than 10 minutes, the place was crawling with cops. They were rolling out the yellow tape. Like, what the heck? To understand the story, you need to understand what kind of place the eclectic was. So it was very unique as far as a commercial enterprise in Farmington. By the fall of 1996, it had only been open for about six months. And it was one of those places that specialized in counterculture and occult paraphernalia, like fantasy board game merchandise, incense, crystals, role-playing instructionals, masks, and ceremonial weapons like knives and swords. So a very specific customer comes here and it's for very specific interests. So there was also the eclectic after hours. And this was where the store hosted role-play events where customers who were interested in this stuff would play games together. It would They were trying to facilitate a community where 
people who are into things like Dungeons and Dragons and Vampire, the Masquerade, they could all intermingle, socialize, and play these games together and do it under this roof of the eclectic. The store, however, wasn't super successful and proved to be more of a magnet for older teens and young adults in Farmington to hang out with many using it as a place to engage in illicit activities. A lot of drug swapping was going on under the roof of the eclectic. To Amanda, who, remember, walked by this place and saw shattered glass and police tape, it looked to her like the place had been robbed after hours. But this obviously took place back in 1996. There is no social media or 24-hour news cycle, so she had to wait until the next day to find out what had happened. So the next day, I, like, run to get the Daily Times, which is our local newspaper. In reading the newspaper, Amanda discovered the horrifying truth. A half hour before she'd driven past the store, police had gotten a concerning call about how the storefront window of the eclectic had been broken. So when police arrived and got inside, they found something they did not expect to see. 18-year-old Matt and his friend, 24-year-old Joe, lay dead on the floor in a pool of blood. And both of them had been brutally murdered. Amanda was completely stunned. When she'd driven past the eclectic the day before, she had no idea that her friend's body lay just inside beyond the broken glass and on the concrete. So who would do this and why? Little did Amanda know that it wouldn't be until several years had passed and more lives had been lost before the truth would be uncovered. But to find out what happened, you know the drill, we gotta go back. When officers initially arrived at Farmington's The Eclectic, they found friends 18-year-old Matthew Trecker and 24-year-old Joseph Fleming lying on the floor. These young men had been savagely attacked. Matt and Joe had both been stabbed multiple times, and whoever had killed them had gone a gruesome step further and decided to decapitate Matt using an edged weapon. Officers also noticed that knives were missing from the store, likely stolen by whomever stole the lives of Joe and Matt. And the murder sent shockwaves of fear rippling throughout the community. Everyone was scared, including Amanda. People were freaked out because stuff like that just doesn't happen. There were vigils outside the place. I remember driving by there and there would be like floral memorials and candles lit outside the store. But people were scared. Detectives wanted to know why Matt and Joe had been at the store so late at night. So it turns out that Matt was friends with the owner and had just that past week started living out of the back of the eclectic because his mom didn't approve of his interest and this deepening interest he seemed to have in this alternative scene. And Joe, his friend, had stopped by after hours at night to play some video games with Matt from a computer inside the store. So... The TV Amanda had seen lying on the road was actually a computer monitor that had been used by someone, probably the killer, to break a window from the inside of the store. So it had been thrown from the inside to the outside. And this is why there was glass all over the sidewalk that Amanda saw. There were several competing theories about the motivation for these killings. Some people thought it was gang-related, while locals seemed to think it involved a satanic ritual or the occult. And being in the mid-90s, the country was still fleeing the influence of the satanic panic which swept the U.S. in the 80s. And only six months earlier, the teen film The Craft had been released. And this was about a bunch of disaffected teens who used the dark arts for nefarious purposes. 
And despite community sentiment and whispers that perhaps somebody had put a curse on the eclectic, the Farmington cops didn't think that the murders were occult-related. There was also a theory that the killer had actually been targeting the owner, whose girlfriend was a security guard and was rumored to have ties to local gangs. They thought maybe it could be gang-related because there were several gangs in the area. Could have been someone stealing because there was merchandise missing. They just didn't know. And I just was more intrigued about trying to find out, you know, is there anyone that I'm walking around at school with that could do this? Both police and the devastated community of Farmington, New Mexico, hoped the murders of 18-year-old Matthew Trecker and 24-year-old Joseph Fleming would be solved quickly. But sadly, it wasn't the case. As the days stretched into weeks and then into months, the case remained unsolved and went cold. Matt's mother tried to do what she could to move the case forward. She and her husband, Matt's stepfather, were incredibly frustrated with police. So for almost a year, they made their own inquiries, speaking to everybody that they could about the case. They had their own ideas about who police should be investigating, which law enforcement wasn't really interested in at all, but we're going to hear a little bit more about that later. To give some context, Matt's friends and associates weren't forthcoming with the information, but not because they didn't want to help. It seemed as though they were afraid of somebody or something happening. Matt and Joe's deaths were a horrible tragedy, and the police took it seriously and investigated thoroughly. But when those initial leads went nowhere and other murders began occurring, the momentum behind the investigation into their deaths weakened. The detectives took on other pressing cases. People sadly move on. The eclectic went out of business a month after the murders. But still, no one could understand how such senseless crimes could have occurred in the first place, nor could they make sense of how the killer continued to avoid capture. Someone had to know something. The months kept passing, and soon a year and a half had passed since Matt and Joe's murder had occurred. It was then that Amanda had heard about yet another murder that occurred just outside of Farmington. And remember, Farmington is a small place, so every resident heard about every murder. News of each one ran in the local newspaper. On April 29, 1988, the body of a 40-year-old Navajo man, Donald Sosi, was found. Donald's partially decomposed body was found off a 30-foot cliff in Head Canyon by locals. He was missing teeth, he had fractured ribs, scalp lacerations, and defensive wounds. He'd last been seen alive almost a month before on March 31st. Donald Sosi was born on December 11th of 1957 in Ganado, Arizona. He was raised by his grandparents near Gallup in New Mexico after a stepfather killed his mother. Donald dropped out of school in seventh grade, but went on to become a skilled carpenter. He was known as kind and helpful, and he loved his family. He had lots of friends, and he enjoyed cooking. At the time Donald was killed, he was living with his girlfriend, Genevieve. And the last time Genevieve saw him was when she dropped him off in Farmington and was supposed to pick him up the next day, but he never showed up. Tragically, Donald struggled with an alcohol dependency, and his family had no idea if he'd gone out drinking and been robbed, or had been left for dead somewhere, or had died from misadventure, like stumbling along a road and being hit by a car. His disappearance was a mystery, but unfortunately, none of those were the case. Donald had, in fact, been brutally murdered. 
By the time his body was found, he'd been dead for over a month. But law enforcement did manage to recover tire prints and shoe impressions from the scene of the crime. The Navajo community was outraged, fearing that they were being targeted. The theory that Donald's murder was a hate crime was all too real and sadly far too pervasive for the Navajo. In 1974, three white Farmington teens tortured and bludgeoned to death three Navajo men in a hate crime known as the Chokecherry Canyon Massacre. Due to the killer's youth, they were all sent to reform school, prompting a backlash from the Navajo community with protesting and rioting in Farmington. These boys, they murdered three Native Americans out in Chokecherry Canyon. They had robbed them. I mean, they, it was horrendous. They set their genitals on fire, sodomized them while they were alive, like with broomsticks and lead pipes and all kinds of stuff. Because they were juveniles, got charged as juveniles, and I believe that they all got convicted. So here's the thing. While the killers in this case were charged as juveniles and not punished as severely as the Navajo community would have wanted, the fates each of these perpetrators would meet were kind of ironic. So if you ask locals, rumor has it that one of them died in a car accident. One killer had been struck by lightning and the other had passed out in a dumpster and crushed by a trash compactor. So apparently like this was all done because they were cursed. But what added an additional layer of intrigue to these fates in context of this story was that many in the local community said that the source of these killers' misfortunes was a curse placed on them by a local shaman seeking retribution for the Navajo victims. They got out of prison and each one of them died in weird circumstances. And legend has it that the Native Americans put a curse on them. Okay, so we're going to snap back to 1997 and to our story that we're telling today. At this point, Amanda was hoping that Matt and Joe's killers would be found. But hope for a positive outcome was dwindling after the case had been cold for two years. Then, Amanda hears about Donald's murder, and she's horrified. But the shock of hearing about the brutal circumstances of his murder would wear off as time went by. But then in June of 2000, it happened again. Amanda heard about a murder of another Navajo. This time, a woman named Betty Lee. At about 7.30 a.m. on June 9th of 2000, an electrical line inspector checking power lines in the Twin Peaks area outside Farmington followed a trail of blood off the road and under some bushes. There, he made a really sad discovery, the body of 36-year-old Betty Lee. Her injuries were graphic. Betty was naked and had been stabbed and bludgeoned to death. She'd been struck in the back of the head at least three to five times with blunt force. And blunt force trauma was her cause of death. So near her body lay her underwear, her sandals, along with two pierced earrings and a knife. On the other side of a roadway was a sledgehammer. Betty had last been seen with her friends the night before. She was born January 10th, 1964 in nearby Shiprock. She was a mom of five and was studying nursing at Denae College. She loved gardening, and she was known as a talented weaver and was from a blended family. And she was strict with her own kids, but they knew her as a loving mother who had a great sense of humor, and she was super fun, and you could really feel the warmth in this picture that we're kind of looking at her right now. She seems like she's just like exuding happiness. Absolutely. It's so sad. So, you know, the police are back at this crime scene, and they're struggling to understand what happened here, right? So... They're looking for evidence, and they find bloody shoe prints as well as tire tracks and shoe impressions. 
But then, about a mile away from Betty's body, police find what they think is their smoking gun. They find a cell phone. And they're wondering, why would a cell phone be a stone's throw away from this crime scene if it wasn't connected to this case in some way, right? So police trace a cell phone back to a man named Charlie Bergen, all right? So this is interesting. This is now a name and an identity connected to this piece of evidence found at the scene. And what Charlie did was he ran a local towing company. So Charlie had to be Betty's killer, right? It's just all too obvious. Why would his phone be there? Yeah, like randomly. So when detectives brought him in for questioning, they asked him why his phone was there. And the story he told was not only unbelievable, but it would also turn out to be true. It's insane. So this is what he told them. In the pre-dawn hours of November 29th, Charlie, who was a tow truck driver, and he was working this late shift, he'd been called to attend to four vehicles that were stuck in some sand just outside of town. And the sand was really, really bad that night. Three civilian cars and then a tow truck trying to help those cars had also gotten stuck. And this is why Charlie was there. He freed all of those cars. And at some point when he was there, he tried to use his cell phone and he had no reception. And at one point he'd gotten so mad that he like couldn't get reception on his phone that he just threw his phone out of anger. And he threw it far and just left it there. He said, fuck it. And this really does sound unbelievable. Like, kind of sounds like a lie. Um, it does, except like I've thrown... If any of my exes listen to this, they would be like, Alexis throws stuff. Oh. Not at anyone, but I like I've been like really mad. Like if I can't tie my shoes, like if I can't get a like a shoelace, like I throw my shoes, like I'll throw things that I'm either ready for them to be destroyed or I know won't break. But I I, I will do it not at anyone. I will throw it at the ground out of anger. That's like such a me move. I mean, many people do it. Do you do this? No. No, you don't have this sort of energy sort of like... I don't get that angry about things, I don't think. (sighs) You should try it. It feels fucking great. (laughs) I should. No, but with him, with Charlie, it's just like... It just seems so coincident. It's just like it seems like some anecdote that a guilty person would make up. You know what I mean? It just seems too obvious. But in this case, it was true, which is pretty insane. And, you know, thank God that... I feel like in a lot of situations, it seems that would seem too easy and they could just go after him and find some other evidence to convict him. You know what I mean? Well, and it's happened where people who have this this smoking gun evidence where it's like, this has to be the person, but there's actually Uh, a reasonable explanation. But like for all of you listening to understand why we know with such certainty that Charlie's story about throwing the cell phone is true. You need to know why Charlie was called here in the first place, and that will shed a lot of light on this case. So as we said, a car is traveling down this road late at night. The first one had gotten stuck in this precarious New Mexico sand, and the man who was driving the vehicle that had gotten stuck was Robert Fry. So the police are interviewing Charlie, and they're hearing this story, and they hear this name, Robert Fry, right? And they recognize it for a couple of reasons. Reason one, so Robert Fry's mother, they know her. Her name's Gloria, and she actually worked as head of the Adult Misdemeanor Probation Department for San Juan County. So they know this family, and she was a former police officer, if you can believe that. Super interesting, right? Beyond that, Robert was also known to police for his previous DUI infractions and assaults. So 
Even though his mom, Gloria, is a former cop and works in law enforcement still, he sort of has a rebellious gene, and and these other officers are aware of that. So as they're putting these pieces together, the officers decide to go over to Gloria and Robert's house. She still lives with him, and she lets them right in. And she sits down at a table with them, and they have a conversation. And here's what they learn from Gloria. So on the night that Betty was killed, Robert had called his parents, saying that his car was stuck on the outskirts of Farmington. Gloria, being the mom that she is, drove out to pick up Robert, who was stranded with his buddy, Leslie. But the problem was, this location where Robert was stranded was extremely close to where Betty's body was found only hours earlier. Gloria also had become stuck in the sand while trying to free him, so she called her husband, James, to come out, and he got stuck too, so they called a towing company. And in somewhat of a comedy of errors, the tow truck also became stuck. So this is when the call was put in to call Charlie, who successfully freed all four vehicles. So remember, at this point, the police are sitting at the table with Gloria inside Gloria's home. And her son is the main suspect. They're already inside of the house. So one thing leads to another. It's not clear how or why, but Gloria allows them to conduct a search. And once they do, they uncover some interesting evidence, evidence that implicates Robert in Betty's murder. And from there, the entire case starts to unravel. It turned out that the shoe impressions at the murder scene also matched shoes belonging to both Robert and the friend who had been with him on the night Betty was murdered. And Robert's car had also gotten stuck in the sand on this very night. So all of these impressions, tire, shoe prints, and otherwise, are matching Betty's crime scene. Then inside the car, police found Betty's earrings, as well as blood transferred from clothing and blood. All of this smeared all over a flashlight also found inside the car. So DNA testing also revealed that blood on the knife, sledgehammer, and flashlight, and the men's shoes and Robert's shirt all matched Betty. Like, this looked really bad for them. Robert fucking did this. And only days after Betty's body was found, police questioned Robert's buddy, Leslie, who just happened to already be locked up by happenstance for an unrelated probation violation. So Leslie told the police on the night of June 8th, 2000, he and Robert went out drinking at a Farmington bar. Robert was wearing a jacket and it kind of had this like strange bulge in that in the jacket, which is kind of interesting, but we're going to keep going. This bulge, one of their buddies was asked about it, and he told them that he had an eight-inch Bowie knife that he was, quote, going to stick somebody. Eventually, Robert and Leslie left and got into Robert's Ford Aspire and hit the road. They eventually arrived at a convenience store to buy cigarettes, and it was then that Robert saw Betty at a payphone. She'd been crying, and she was super upset that she'd been out with two female friends that night, but she was now alone. Betty ended up alone that night because her friend's according to the reporting, had gone to a motel and left her by herself. And according to the reporting, had met up with some guys and that was cramping Betty's style because she wasn't interested in that. So she relied on these friends to get back to Shiprock, which is where she lived. But because her friends decided to go do their own thing, she was now stranded. She went to this payphone, right? And she tried to call her brother for a ride, but her brother didn't pick up. And it was then that Robert Fry decided that he was going to prey on someone in a very vulnerable situation. He approached Betty and offered her a ride and said, you know, I hate to see a woman cry. I want to give you a ride. She gets in the car with them. The men and Betty set off with Robert taking this kind of weird remote 
dirt road into the middle of nowhere. When he stopped his car, he said, Betty, I have to relieve myself. And he got out to pee. But for some reason during that period of time, Betty got a really weird feeling. She got really spooked. She got out of the car. She started running. She had this feeling that like, I'm not safe. You know, she followed that instinct and left. But once Robert noticed, he actually chased her and caught up to her and convinced her that she, she was safe. He put her fears at ease and said, Hey, we're going to take you home safely. Get back in the car. So after that, the trio only drove a short distance before Robert stopped the car suddenly, opened the passenger door, and pulled Betty out by her hair. Robert told Leslie to hold Betty's legs while Robert tried to pull off Betty's shirt. When she fought back and kicked Robert, he took his knife and drove it two inches into Betty's chest, narrowly missing her heart, and Betty fell to the ground. As the men tried to pull off her pants, she screamed, why are you doing this to me? And despite how terrified Betty was, she yanked the knife out of her chest and threw it away. She then got up and ran for her life, but Robert caught up to her. The men pulled off her pants, and despite being completely naked, Betty got away once more and fled. So it was then that Robert used a sledgehammer um, that he pulled from the trunk, and he started chasing Betty, and he told Leslie to find the knife they had with them. And Leslie would ultimately admit to police that while he was searching the darkness, he saw Robert catch up to Betty far away and swing the sledgehammer at her. The men then dragged Betty to some bushes into a ravine and disclothed her before disposing of her. Then as they made their way back to the highway at around 4 a.m., that's when their car got stuck in the sand. So Robert would call his mom, Gloria, to come get them, which eventually resulted in the four vehicles being towed away by Charlie, the man whose cell phone was found near the scene. And all the while this was going on, Betty was a stone's throw away. He'd killed her. And he acted like nothing fucking happened. A true fucking sociopath. On June 11th, 2000, Robert was charged with Betty's murder, as well as kidnapping, attempted criminal sexual penetration, and tampering with evidence. He denied meeting Betty and lied about his movements the night of her death and the clothes he'd been wearing, telling police he was only in the area to relieve himself after taking Leslie home. Suspicion also hovered over his parents, Gloria and her husband, James. So what did they know? And did they know more than they were saying? They saw Robert that very night, so you'd think after bludgeoning Betty to death, he'd have been covered in blood. To make things more interesting, apparently Gloria had walked up to the crime scene early the next day while police were processing the scene. And for her explanation as to why she was walking up to the scene, she said she had a mere curiosity. But given the location and the time of mourning, it was odd for her to be there. And she failed to mention that she'd been there only hours before when her son's car had been stuck in the sand. I mean, it doesn't look great. How could they not know picking him up in the middle of the desert like that? Not knowing, you know what I mean? Like putting two and two together. I think at the end of the day, everyone, obviously his parents, his sister or whoever, they're all devastated. Everyone's devastated by this because it's not the person that you know. And that's what's scary is, uh, you know, you never know who you're walking next to. Not much is publicly known about how much Gloria and James knew, if at all, about their son's involvement. Gloria later testified that she made absolutely no connection between coming to her son's rescue and the body being found in the same area the following day. She and her husband weren't charged with anything related to the murder. So there's no doubt that Betty's murder is disgusting and senseless and disheartening. And there's no words for the sadness her loved ones experienced. 
I'm sure you're wondering, what does Betty's murder have to do with Matthew Trecker, Joe Fleming, and Donald Sosi? Trust me, we're getting there. So Leslie, who confessed to his role in Betty's murder as the co-conspirator and who outed Robert as the killer, he was talking to police and he kept talking. And through the course of his confession, he actually implicated Robert in the murder of Donald Sosi as well. He actually told investigators that on March 31st of 98, he and Robert saw Donald walking near a bar on Main Street and they offered him a ride. Donald had been drinking and he willingly accepted the offer. So Leslie said that once Donald was in the car, Robert decided, you know, he pivoted things towards darkness and he hit him in the face and ordered Leslie to help him by choking Donald with his belt from behind. And that's where Leslie was sitting in the back seat. So he's like commanding the situation once Donald gets in the car. But Donald, he's a tough dude. He he fought back. And just outside of town, Robert stopped the car and dragged Donald out of the vehicle and onto the ground. It was then that Leslie saw Robert beating this man with a broomstick. Unclear where that came from, but he claimed that Robert ordered him to hit Donald in the back with a shovel. And the beatings continued from there. This entire situation, the randomness, the senselessness of it is deranged and horrifying and truly troubling. The men searched a now unconscious Donald for money, but when they found nothing, they rolled him off the 30-foot cliff and left him for dead, throwing the murder weapons into the San Juan River. But what was compelling about Leslie's account was that the police withheld a detail relating to the crime which only the killer would have known. And that was that Donald's boots and cowboy hat were also thrown down the cliff after his body. They didn't release about the boots being thrown at Donald Sosi, but when he was rolled off the cliff, they didn't release that to the public. They kept that. And that's how they knew that it was legit. They knew to connect them because Ian had told them. So what do we know about this Robert Fry character? Well, we know that he killed Betty and we know he killed Donald. We know his mom is a former cop. The question is, who else has he killed? And how did he get here? So Robert Fry was born August 18th, 1973 in Farmington and was the youngest of four kids in a blended family. In his teen years, he was bullied by his peers for being overweight and having literacy issues. Despite retaliating by getting into fights at school and being disruptive, he managed to graduate from Farmington High School. And in 1991, 18-year-old Robert became a volunteer firefighter, but he was obsessed with playing Dungeons and Dragons and started collecting exotic and ornamental knives. Robert started losing touch with reality and was heavily using drugs and alcohol. And he enjoyed starting fights and always wanted to be the last to finish them. In 1992, he was shipped off to the Navy to get straightened out. But Robert didn't last long in the Navy. In 94, the 20-year-old returned to Farmington after being dishonorably discharged for, you guessed it, fighting and drinking. He took on a string of different jobs from a bouncer to a security guard to driving a van for a halfway house. But he was still fixated on knives and his behavior continued to be erratic. So Robert seemed to have a real bloodlust and bragged to anyone who would listen about all the violent fights he got into with First Nations people. And he claimed that these fights resulted in gory injuries. He was very vocal about his hate and his racism, but no one ever paid much attention to his idiotic tirades. 
maybe they should have though. You know, this isn't a fucking joke because this guy really hurt people. This dude was hateful. He was also six feet and 250 pounds. He was an imposing, scary guy. Beyond that, he had a history of sexual assault, had reportedly raped a 16-year-old friend of his, but they were ultimately too afraid to press charges. This guy was, he was scary, he was imposing, and he was worth taking seriously. Robert Fry was super braggadocious. Like, he would go out and brag to anyone that would listen, and no one believed him because his stories were so outlandish. The San Juan County Sheriff's Department, the Navajo Nation Police, and this is where Betty had two brothers working as officers and her sister was the chief criminal investigator, and two detectives for playing key roles in connecting the dots and bringing charges against Robert for Donald and Betty's murders. Detective Bob Melton was also a family friend of Amanda's and attended their church, and he also knew of Robert Fry. In June of 2000, Robert and Leslie were charged with Donald Sosie's murder. Robert's friends realized with shock that the bragging about all of this violence had actually been true. So unfortunately, as New Mexico hadn't at this time legislated against hate crimes, Robert couldn't be charged with this as a separate offense in addition to murder. But even though he was locked up for now, this didn't stop the Navajo community from living in fear. So his obsession with the occult was all over the news. So naturally, this was really frightening to the Navajo community on a spiritual level. As you mentioned, Robert Fry was a big guy, and the fear was that this would encourage additional and more hate crimes. So Navajo folklore describes a shape-shifting, malevolent being known as skinwalkers. And the mythology goes that skinwalkers are former medicine men who have abused their powers for evil purposes. As punishment, they're forever forced to walk the earth disguised as deformed four-legged animals looking to inflict pain and suffering on others. Now, obviously, Robert Fry was never a medicine man, but according to the book Monster Slayer by Robert Scott, the killer was believed to have some Mohawk heritage. And we need to keep in mind that the murders occurred in a store selling occult merchandise, and these things only really fed into the fear being felt by the Navajo community. So I'm sure one there couldn't help but wonder if there was a wicked force at work in the community which had sprung forth from the other world. This is terrible to say because I, I do love Farmington and, and my family still lives there and it is a beautiful place and there's so many good people there, but there's just something about it. There's just something mysterious. I mean, you know, you've got all the prejudice that's happened. And I guess when you're raised in that environment, you start to believe some of those things. So yes, Robert Fry, absolutely. He could definitely, the occult, the store, all that. Every town has people that are, you know, like dark things, but uh, there's just a lot of coincidences there. By the year 2000, the murders of 18-year-old Matthew Trecker and 24-year-old Joseph Fleming, they remained unsolved. But that didn't mean that people had stopped caring about them. Matt's mother was instrumental in keeping interest in her son and Joe's case. However, as far as most people knew, their killer was still on the loose. But detectives finally got their break almost four years later to the day after the slings occurred. With Robert Fry now in custody for Donald and Betty's murders and the resulting publicity, an informant actually contacted the police and they had something really interesting to say. So what they said was that Robert had told him years prior 
that he and another local 27-year-old man named Harold Pollock had been the ones to kill Matt and Joe at the Eclectic Occult shop. And unbeknownst to the wider community, Robert and Harold had actually been persons of interest in the eclectic murders very early on. So both of the men knew Matt and Joe, and Robert had been the last person to see the victims that night, having been in the store before it closed. Robert had a prior record for assaults, and he had been acquitted on a kidnapping charge and often hung out at the eclectic for roleplay events. In the lead up to the murders, Joe was said to have had a word with Robert about his behavior during a roleplay. Robert Fry worked with Joseph Fleming at our local mall, Animus Valley Mall. They were both security guards, and they had all frequented that store. They were all friends. They ran in the same circles. So Matt's mother knew Robert, too, and actually warned Matt to stay away from him. She had a really bad feeling about Robert Fry. And at the time the investigation was unfolding, the police were said to have had more likely suspects. So they really didn't focus on Robert or Harold more closely than they would anyone else. Like there seemed to be more likely suspects at hand. Unfortunately, we don't know who these other suspects were or what made them focus on them as opposed to the true killers. In the early days of the investigation, when Robert was a suspect, he even took and passed a polygraph after the murders. And I'm so sorry for those of you who believe in polygraphs. Like this is why they're irrelevant. Like People, sociopaths, pass them all the time. If they're not stressed about what they did, then they're not going to fucking register as being uh, deceptive, you know? So anyways, and true to form, Robert was believed to have bragged about these murders to other people. And all those people just dismissed it as, as bullshitting. And it turned out he was telling the fucking truth and bragging about this horrible shit he'd done. But the evidence against Robert would turn out to be compelling in the form of an eventual confession from his accomplice, Harold, who signed an immunity deal protecting him from prosecution on the condition that he wasn't part of the murders in return for providing information. Investigators already had physical evidence tying Robert to the murder scene. Bloody shoe prints showed the killer wore a size 9 to size 11 shoe. Harold wore a size 7, but Robert was a 10 and a half. When Harold finally opened up to detectives, this is what he told them. He said on the night of November 29th, 1996, the men had been at a party. And at some point while they're at this party, they decide to leave and they go for a drive and they eventually stop at the eclectic right before it was slated to close. So they get there. And after stealing some knives from an unlocked cabinet, the men took off to Choke Cherry Canyon to bury the weapons. So Accomplice Harold then claimed that Robert demanded that they go back to the eclectic store because he had to use the bathroom. And Harold recalled that that sounded weird. He didn't know why Robert wanted to go back there. And also, the two men had been pissing in the fucking desert all night. Yeah. But yet, at this moment, he needs to go back to the eclectic to use a bathroom like a civilized person when he's been peeing, you know, outdoors indefinitely, you know? So Harold then claimed that while he was suspicious about their reasoning for going back, he did agree to it. And they arrived sometime between three and 4 a.m. Then when Robert got there, he used the bathroom just as he said he would. And then Harold did. And Harold said when he came out of the restroom, he saw Robert on top of Joe with his hands around Joe's throat. Joe was covered in blood, and then Robert doubled down and stood up and stood on Joe's throat. So 
According to Harold, Joe is just on a killing rampage. And when it came to describing what happened to Matt, Harold initially said that he noticed Matt's throat had been cut and that he was laying in a pool of blood. The account Harold gave much later on was that after Robert killed Joe, Matt wandered into the front of the shop, having awoken due to the commotion. Robert punched Matt and knocked him out before going back to Joe and slitting his throat. Harold claims that he was too scared to run away, but before he could do anything else, Robert stabbed Matt in the chest, then handed the knife to Harold and told him to stab Matt too. That was when Harold stabbed Matt at least three times. But it wasn't over. They both had a hand in the decapitation that ensued next. The two men then staged the crime scene to make it look like a robbery. Robert stole even more weapons, but on their way to escape, he broke the key off in the door lock. And the only other escape route was the door with an electronic alarm. So Robert threw a computer monitor through the window. And that explains what our first degree saw. That's why they did that. They threw a computer monitor through the window so they could escape there rather than through a door and, you know, complicate their escape as far as evidence is concerned. After that, they drove to Farmington Lake where they disposed of the weapons and they also disposed of Robert's bloodstained clothing and boots. And as sickening as all that sounds and knowing Robert had a record, it's heartbreaking to learn that the courts could have put Robert away a year earlier, thereby saving Donald and Betty's lives. Almost a year after the eclectic murders in September of 1997, Robert allegedly attacked a friend of his, whom we're going to call Rachel, after he found out that she'd been arrested for prostitution. Robert threatened Rachel with a gun and was said to have sexually assaulted her with a metal bar, causing internal bleeding. And as the case progressed to court, police felt that Rachel was an uncooperative witness, but in reality, she was just extremely fucking traumatized. Yeah. So, of course, Robert's legal team continued to successfully get the trial delayed, which only drew things out for Rachel and further, like, played into her trauma and fear. So, finally, in March of 99, the jury found that Rachel lacked credibility. So Robert was sentenced to 18 months in jail for illegal use of a firearm and drunk driving, but was found not guilty of kidnapping and sexual penetration. But had this case been more aggressively pursued by the cops and legal prosecutors, Robert may have been found guilty and he could have been in jail preventing the murders of Donald and Betty. Robert was released from jail in the spring of 2000, and we know what happened after that. So let's go back to Harold's confession. In early December of 2000, Robert was charged with the murders of Matt and Joe. Matt's mother, for one, wasn't surprised by what Harold told police. She'd had a feeling all along that Robert was involved, but she just couldn't prove it. The morning after Matt was found dead, Robert told Christina that he'd been the last person to see Matt alive. And obviously this comment alone doesn't make Robert a killer, but it just goes to show that Christina's intuition was completely right all along. Yes, and you'll recall that Harold's immunity deal meant that he wouldn't be charged if he wasn't part of the murders, but he made a huge mistake in providing more information after his initial interview, because by directly implicating himself in the murders, the deal was now off the table. So when news of the arrest broke, it was a relief, but also a shock for our first-degree Amanda. This is a fucking serial killer, and a local one, no less, and They'd been in their midst the entire time. So bearing in mind that Robert and Harold had tried to, you know, desecrate Matt, her friend post-mortem, it added a whole other layer for her. It was traumatizing. It was upsetting. It was worst case scenario. 
you know, I was relieved that they found the person and that they took this monster off the streets. But who knows? He could be like an Israel Keys and we just don't know, right? I mean, he bragged so much that no one ever believed him. But when I found out about Matthew being, you know, with it being solved, I was just relieved for his family. I can't imagine the pain that they went through. In spring of the year 2002, Robert and Leslie were convicted of kidnapping, attempted criminal sexual penetration, and the first-degree murder of Betty. Four days later, Robert was sentenced to die by lethal injection. Leslie received a life in prison plus 10 years for his involvement in Betty's murder after pleading guilty and testifying against Robert. And in the context of this being in New Mexico, Robert's sentence was a big deal. And this was because convicted felons were rarely sentenced to death, and it was rarely upheld on appeal, and even if it was, it was rarely carried out. Right, but there would be more consequences for the Fry family. So a petition demanding Gloria be removed from her job with the San Juan County Probation Department circulated and would be successful. So not only had she gone to scope out the crime scene only hours before picking Robert up from the area... But the phone he'd called her on would ultimately be revealed as county property, which Gloria had no place lending to anyone. So this means she had a a county cell phone because she was working for the county and she gave it to him and it was placed at the scene. That's really bad. So while these errors of judgment certainly weren't crimes on their own, they weren't ethical. And given the seniority of her position, the idea was that Gloria should have known better, right? So it wasn't a good look for her. It looked as though she didn't have the public's best interest. She more so had her son's best interest in mind. So she was fired in early June of 2002. So 15 months later, on September 3rd of 03, Robert and Leslie were both convicted of the murder of Donald Sosie and both sentenced to life in prison. Of course, part of what made Matt and Joe's murders even more terrifying than usual was Robert didn't appear to have much of a motive at all. The slayings weren't sexually motivated, and in the words of the assistant DA, for him, killing's just fun, picking a random victim. There's no robbery here. There's no motive of monetary gain. He just kills people, and apparently he enjoys killing people. It's terrifying. Awful. And it seemed like Robert simply chose defenseless victims purely to live out his sick, bloodthirsty fantasies. Right. And Christina and Jeff Trucker's dedication and commitment to keeping Matt's case alive, this is his parents, they finally saw the matter get to court in the early 2005. So on January 20th, Robert was found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder, larceny, tampering with evidence, and intimidation of a witness. And he was ultimately convicted of two life sentences. Harold, his accomplice, was sentenced to life in prison as an accessory. They advocated for Matthew, and they still advocate for Matthew. And I think the kindest thing I think I read was that his mom forgave Robert Fry for what he, you know, what he did, because in her words, that's what Matthew would have done. And it brings it back. Matthew was just such a kind soul, and, you know, he wouldn't hurt a fly. So it's just so tragic that he, his life ended that way. I hate it for Matthew's family. I'm so grateful that his mom especially just continued to fight for his justice because otherwise between him and Bob Melton without them I don't know because Farmington is small potatoes you know like when you hear of this and this kind of murder it's just it's scary because it could have been me it could have been my friends well it was my friend Matthew was my friend 
Robert appealed his conviction and sentence for Betty's murder, but this was upheld by the Supreme Court of Mexico. Before years later, New Mexico repealed capital punishment. Robert's death sentence remained intact because he'd been convicted and sentenced seven years prior. But this didn't stop him from arguing that the death penalty now violated his constitutional right to not be subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. So in 2011, the New Mexico Supreme Court upheld Robert's appeal against his convictions for Matt and Joe's murders. He continued to appeal his death sentence, despite legislators making it clear that repealing the death penalty was not retrospective and only applied to cases heard after 2009. But in 2019, the state Supreme Court vacated Robert's death sentence and he was resentenced to life in prison. The court determined that his death sentence was unlawful because it was disproportionately harsh compared to, with sentences imposed in similar murder cases. And thankfully for the victim's families and everybody, really, Robert will never be eligible for release given he has to serve a minimum of 120 years for all four of his first-degree murder convictions. Many believe that these four murder convictions are likely just the tip of the iceberg for Robert Fry. From a law enforcement perspective, Robert's been a person of interest in at least three other local homicides and missing persons cases. Given his record of violence against First Nations people and the fact that they're disproportionately, you know, targeted when it comes to being victims of crime, no one who's familiar with this case would be surprised if the body count was much higher. So what does this mean for Farmington and for the Navajo Nation? We can only hope that the death and violence of Robert and his accomplices wrought upon Farmington, and it's profoundly disturbing the Navajo philosophy of living in harmony and balance with the surrounding world. We can hope that it will never be so powerful that it conquers the warmth and spirit of those who call the city or the reservation home today. huge thank you to Amanda for being our first degree guest for this episode. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group, join our Patreon to get bonus content and stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. That's right. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Gemma Harris. Sources for this episode are Core Documents, The Associated Press, Reuters, Find a Grave, KRGE News, The Santa Fe New Mexican, The Albuquerque Journal, DiscoverNavajo.com, CulturalSurvival.org, The Farmington Daily News, IndianCountryToday.com, KOAT News, IndiaNZ.com, the Deming Headlight, the Lineup, the Lost Cruces Sun News, and the books Monster Slayer by Robert Scott, and the Broken Circle, a story of murder and magic in Indian country by Rodney Barker. And as always, our first three guests is always our largest source. <laughs>